Well, good morning. On behalf of our church, Stone Church in Vancouver, Canada, the other Vancouver, bring uh, Canadian greetings. I won't say which one's better. <laughs> but we all know, all right. But it is a privilege to be here this morning. I want to thank uh, Pastor Jeff and the rest of his church family here for opening up their home to us. Uh, what a blessing that is. It is an encouragement for me to always to come. I don't come to every conference, but when I do come, uh, see a lot of familiar faces, and they stick out their hand and just say, I've been praying for you. And that is so encouraging, because uh, we certainly need your prayers up in Canada. And uh, I know that many Americans have been moving to Canada because of uh, last year's election, I think it was, wasn't it? So, but uh, we are very privileged uh, to be living in these days. These are really the end days, and uh, we need to be on guard. And, and this conference and the message, the theme, uh, resonates not only with me and hopefully with all of you, uh, being in ministry and serving our Lord and, and counting the cost as we learned last night. So before we begin, let's uh, commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we are so thankful that we have you as our precious Savior, and that you, out of your grace, have called each one of us to be your family, saved by your grace, and Lord, put into ministry in this world. So Lord, we pray that this morning, as we go through a very familiar passage, the Great Commission, as we call it, that our hearts would be rekindled, that we would have a continued undying passion for what you have commanded your disciples to carry out. And so, Lord, we just want to commit this time to you. Might you be glorified. We ask in our precious Savior's name, Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Well, how many of you have been to Missions Fest Seattle? Quite a few of you. How many of you have gone further north to Missions Fest Vancouver? Awesome. So if you're ever up there again, uh, give us a call. Love to uh, host you or maybe join you down at Missions Fest. And if you're like our family, we have attended more than one missions fest. We've uh, gone to uh, missions conferences, missions night, and, and probably most of you have uh, hosted those in your own church for your own church family. And it's a great place to find out about God. It's a great thing to just encourage the saints to learn about the Great Commission and encourage them to do what Jesus has called us to do. And another benefit of those conferences is that we gather together as a church, the universal church, and, and we often run into people in ministry that we might not see because they're somewhere else. And so that is also a great joy for us. Now, these kinds of events are based upon a well-known passage from the words of our resurrected Lord, uttered a short time before he was to ascend to heaven, and this passage is what we have termed the Great Commission. And the term likely 
stemming from the 1600s, from uh, that period of time, but it was certainly popularized by Hudson Taylor. That is a name that we all know, probably all of us know. And this Great Commission, as we continue to call it that, it's found at the very end of Matthew 28. And as we unfold this passage, something to consider is, do we truly understand what Jesus is calling all believers to do when Jesus declares the following? And so I invite you to open your Bibles, if you haven't, to this passage in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. And this is what it states. And Jesus says, or in Matthew account, in his account, he says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Especially for us, if you remember, if you think back just to everyday life, where maybe a family member or friend has come to the end of his or her life, we know that any last words of someone who we love or someone who is beloved usually are very important words, particularly if that person is going away or perhaps they're, they're dying. And so we pay attention when we hear those words. And in this passage, it's no different because Jesus has been crucified. He has buried, been buried and then rose to life on the third day. And he physically and bodily appeared to many witnesses. And here Jesus is leaving. He's preparing. And he has prepared his disciples in his earthly ministry. And now he has some final words to say to his beloved few. And so he deposits important instructions, a legacy to follow, a stewardship entrusted to us who are saved. We are the family of God. We are the church. We are his band of disciples. And so this morning, we'll look at the topic of the importance of discipleship in the church. And I think all of us would agree that, yes, discipleship is important. But sometimes we need to be refreshed in our thinking and to come to this passage and to be reminded of what the, the call is that Jesus calls us to right down to the time that he will take us out of this world. And as we learn about this topic, I want you to note from this passage eight reasons why discipleship is important. My aim is not to elaborate and, and to give you all the how to make disciple tips. Our brother Matt Daniels will help us in, in that way this evening. But I will talk a little bit about how to make disciples as it relates to this specific passage. But I want all of us to 
be able to lay a good foundation for the theme of our conference, which is spiritual growth through discipleship. And it has been an enriching time for me to prepare this sermon, uh, to share God's word with you, because it unravels and it challenges me as I've studied this uh, to, uh, deeper to, to go broader, to go deeper in the implications of Jesus' word. Sometimes we just kind of heard the Great Commission so many times that we just kind of take it for granted. And so it's, it's great just to be able to go back into this text and just to be encouraged by Jesus. And so let's get right into things, and I hope that you would be encouraged just as much as I have been. The first thing we want to see and draw out from this passage is that discipleship leads the people of Christ to come together who affirm the cost of following Jesus. Discipleship leads the people of Christ to come together who affirm the cost of following Jesus. Jesus' beloved group of followers, the disciples, are given some instructions which we'll elaborate uh, upon later. Our brother Tim Atkins, uh, last night in our first session, taught us uh, and reminded us of what is discipleship, uh, what is a disciple. And last night, we also took a look at the scripture and found that there is a cost there is a cost to follow Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. And indeed, we discovered that when it came to speaking about being a disciple, Jesus gave some of his hardest and his most demanding statements to the people that came to him and even said that they followed him or maybe even considered themselves as disciples. As Tim took us to look through Luke 14, verse 25 to 30, and I'll just kind of summarize that to keep us uh, on the right track. And uh, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Disciple, And then verse 33, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so now as we approach the text of the Great Commission, we find out that the 11 disciples, they got the message. They understood the cost and therefore we can glean from our passage this morning that they began to live it out. And that is so important. It's one thing to hear it and understand the message, but it is another thing, a totally different thing to really carry it out. And so in the shadows of this narrative, we know that the one who could not count the cost, Judas, followed his own will and he ended up killing himself, committed suicide. That was his solution. And in the immediate context of this chapter, the tomb was empty as Jesus had rose from the dead, the angel told the two Marys that they will see Jesus in Galilee as he had gone ahead. And as they made their way back, to, to, uh, made their way back, Jesus then appeared to the women and gave them instruction to tell the believers to also go to Galilee. And in the meantime, there was a cover-up plot and the bribery of the soldiers who were guarding the tomb. And now that takes us to 
our passage, Matthew 28, verse 16. And that verse states, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So what we want to draw from Matthew's account is that the people of Christ come together who affirm the cost of following Jesus. And this is what takes place here. The 11 disciples went to Galilee in obedience, in obedience to the instruction of their Lord and Savior. We're not certain which mountain it was and when it was decided, but that's not really the point. The point was that this is evidence, evidence of transformation, of counting the cost, that in the early days after the resurrection that the 11 disciples are among those who renounce all that he has in order to be Jesus' disciple. And they followed Jesus when he called them to follow him at the beginning of his ministry. They followed when tested and were stretched during the trial and crucifixion, those scared and trembling yet not knowing what would happen in the future. Yet they persevered. And now they continue to be directed by the call of Jesus and come together affirming the continued cost of following their Lord. And so we recognize that Jesus gave the Great Commission to a group, a group of believers, those who were closest to him, and he also gives it to us corporately as the church. And that's something that we need to be reminded of. It is for the church and not just for individuals of the church. You know, here's a pocket, there's a pocket, here's a guy that I can, you know, disciple. But it is for the whole group. And they indeed were, and we are also blessed as we continue to unfold later this aspect. But another important reality of discipleship is that number two, discipleship leads to worship. Discipleship leads to worship, even with imperfect faith. As Matthew recounts now, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Maybe we can imagine what experience Explosive joy. Explosive joy it must have been for the disciples when they saw Jesus again on the mountain. Their resurrected Lord, God the Son, their Savior. And everything that was foretold by Jesus before the crucifixion had been affirmed in a number of appearances to the disciples before this one on the mountain, which served to build up true hope that would carry them into future ministry and even martyrdom. And that's where we need to be. We need to remember that Jesus is alive. Even though we don't see him, how much more we are blessed because we haven't seen him and yet have faith in him and yet follow him. And so as we look at this, discipleship leads disciples to worship because the scripture here gives us the immediate response of the disciples present at Galilee 
was that they worshipped him. The numerous lessons and examples that Jesus poured into these 11 culminated in worship. Everything else at that moment ceased. The things of the world now are momentarily eclipsed. And in humble obedience and submission, they all bowed down to the Lord of all in worship. And if we know the word worship, it could, they could have even prostrated themselves down on the ground in worship. And as they worship him, it, it tangibly demonstrated that they ascribed eternal worth to God the Son alone, placing the highest value on him, attributing reverence, adoration, and honor to him by a simple yet a very profound loving action. A faithful and effective disciple is one who knows that the ultimate priority of worship comes before anything else. It, become, it, it comes even before everything because we were saved to be worshipers of the one true God. Discipleship leads disciples to worship. It doesn't matter how, how capable they were or how smart they were or how accomplished they were in carrying out their ministry. Their worship was what made them true disciples. The attitude of sincere worship requires a disciple to, to deny self and to focus upon bringing glory to God. And as they worshiped him, their worship did glorify their Lord. I think as we look at this passage, we might understand that the prerequisite to the Great Commission is the central focus for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in ascribing supreme worth to God in the spiritual act of worship. Worship on a personal level is a total submission of oneself in heart, in mind, in body, and soul to our great God and Savior. Worship that is corporate has the explicit upward focus of a multitude of people focused upon God by offering up praises and giving glory to him. And so this morning, it was so fitting that we came together, we sung praises to God in worship, and now we worship him and continue to worship him through his word and learn about the Great Commission, having worshiped him, ready to put that into action. And because of this hard affection for the object of their worship, who is Jesus, a disciple is then ready to learn and to drink deeply from the fountain of life. Individual and corporate worship is not an option as, as we know. It is a, a privilege it is something that we desire to do because of our salvation. It is an absolute necessity which is tied directly to discipleship because worship is man's highest calling as the born again. And now Matthew presents to us a brutal honesty, a broader picture, a transparency as he included an interesting statement, but some Doubted. 
And out of the group of the disciples, there were some who wavered and hesitated, which Matthew leaves undefined. And it appears that this referred to the 11 as that is the immediate context of this verse, but it doesn't eliminate that there were also other disciples gathered at this mountain. There were the two Marys who were told to go there, that they would see Jesus in Galilee, and there were the they were to tell other disciples to also go to, to Galilee because Jesus was going to be there. And if it applies to some of the 11, it authentically shows that there were this group of people who were just like you and me. Sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we wonder, now what's Jesus doing in my church? I'm committed to the Great Commission, but I don't really see much fruit happening. And sometimes we doubt. And we manifest imperfect faith. There are other possibilities, too, as to why some doubted, but in the end, the text doesn't define that either. So it would be speculation just to go beyond that. But leading into what Jesus would say in the remaining verses, the fact is that discipleship is to instill confident trust in Jesus, which removes doubt and therefore leads disciples to worship him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus has now moved up close. He's come to his disciples. Disciples came to Galilee and they gathered around him, but Jesus comes, and he comes close to those he loves. And we'll begin to unfold number three. Discipleship leads believers to recognize the supremacy of Christ in everything. Discipleship leads believers to recognize the supremacy of Christ in everything. In verse 18, at the mountain we find that Jesus, having come near to his disciples, including those who were hesitant, maybe they were kind of, well, you know, I'm not the most perfect disciple. And maybe they kind of wanted to be at the back of the crowd, but Jesus came and moved toward them. And he said to them something that would affirm that he is the Christ triumphant. He proclaimed something reassuring, reminiscent of the time of his transfiguration that we can read from Matthew 17, verse 7. And it says, but Jesus came. There's another example that Jesus came to them and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. Imagine how comforting that would have been. You know, it's like a brother or sister, maybe knowing that you've gone through some hardship and kind of putting their hand on your shoulder and saying, you've done well. Trust in the Lord. Continue to trust in him. But yet what Jesus was now going to say has ethnic, has global and eternal implications, widespread theological impact that Jesus' incarnation bore forth his humiliation as we can read from Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then looking forward to his resurrection and beyond Jesus' exaltation, verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In addition, we can read throughout Ephesians chapter 1, all the authority of Christ, which concludes this chapter with these words, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And the Apostle Paul could only be able to write about these realities because Jesus rightly declared, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Imagine that. That he received from God, the Father, all authority, the maximum right, the highest degree of power in the very far reaches of the dwelling place of God and over his heavenly host and into the realm of the earth as king of kings and lord of lords, possessing absolute authority, absolute power, absolute dominion, absolute preeminence as the absolute conqueror of all, as one person has written and the greatest outcome of discipleship is that it leads us to recognize the supremacy of Christ. And so we do bow down in that profound worship of our radiant Jesus. It doesn't end here. As awesome as it is, and that we see and begin to see the importance of discipleship in this passage. And therefore, what Jesus now states and communicates to us, number four, discipleship is commanded of God's people. Discipleship is commanded of God's people. And here comes the familiar verses. Go, therefore, and make disciples. From verse 16 to the end of what Matthew wrote in his gospel, that is verse 20, in all that Jesus said to his disciples, he gave only one command. The what. He gave the what of the Great Commission, which is to make disciples, or literally translated, disciple. Go therefore and disciple, which is in the imperative and the only imperative among the verbs. 
And so because of this exegetical point, it is the main verb driving verse 19. And so the emphasis is not go, nor baptizing, or teaching. These three verbs are used by Jesus to describe the action. And he gives us the how to make disciples. And the way it is accomplished is go, or literally having gone. So the emphasis is not that Jesus is necessarily sending them out. You know, go here, go there. This is where I want you to go. That is not what he is commanding. But the assumption is that they already will be in some place. And so it is there in that particular location of where they have gone that they are to disciple. And therefore, in the Great Commission, discipleship is commanded by Jesus for his people. And so once again, given to a group who are to be disciples, we recognize that the Great Commission was never meant as a solo work. You know, many of you here are pastors. It is not your sole work to carry out the Great Commission. It must be a corporate work. The whole church, we must be encouraged to, and I've been reminded by this passage that the Great Commission is for the whole church. The whole church has to embrace the Great Commission, not just a few select leaders, the elders, or maybe some of the mature believers in the church, but everyone, doesn't matter where they're at, but as long as they are a believer, they are to embrace the Great Commission. And we need to communicate that to them because there is this thinking that, well, it's only the elders who are supposed to get us to carry out the Great Commission. So Jesus wants us to be all together in this work. And for, for the foregoing points, this is why the local church should describe this passage as a mission passage, disciple, and not a missions passage, which often we hear, go, go to this land, go to this land, and be a missionary there, and spread the message there. That is part of it, but that is not the main thrust. And so the next important reality of the Great Commission is, and I promise you, okay, our dear brother Bob, he didn't put me up to plant this nice point. Because number five, discipleship leads to church planting. And we see that in the second half of verse 19. If a church's constituents truly have counted the cost and are committed to discipleship and is effective at it, then there will be the inevitable need for church extension or church planting. It should be a strong pulse toward an unceasing movement to make disciples of all nations. And an understanding of the word nations is that it comes from the Greek ethne. We get the English word ethnic from it. It means people or nation, the nations, heathen world or, or Gentiles. And therefore, in context, it means outside of the nation of Israel. But in broader application, according to the definition of that word, it also encompasses every believing, uh, sorry, every unbelieving person tied together by common customs or culture. And so for us, especially being in the Pacific Northwest, there are many groups that have this culture, or might even call subculture. And so for us on a practical level, 
level, making disciples can be locally or globally. And as a side note, I believe that this is another reason that the Great Commission is not limited to solely be an evangelistic text as some promote it that way exclusively. So wherever the Lord has placed you, if it's in this church, for example, or maybe a different church in a different part of Washington or even Oregon, then Jesus' will for you is to make disciples there. From those who are given to you, who have gathered together because of Christ and, the, and to make disciples of the people groups that are around you. Some of you are in farming communities and maybe that people group is the farmers and some of the hipsters down in Seattle and some of the tree huggers in Vancouver. <laughs> but they need the gospel. Maybe for some of you here, you know, you're thinking, well, I'm just a housewife. Well, there is that people group who are drawn together. Maybe it's at work, maybe it's at play, wherever you've gone, wherever God has placed you, wherever he may send you. And when that takes place, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ and to his glory, it grows. And if we continue to till the soils of discipleship and under the Lord's grace, he fertilizes the, and waters the seeds of those discipleship relationships, we will see that the fields are ready for harvest in the church. And then we will get to the point where we would naturally recognize that discipleship leads to church planting as a legitimate and needed outcome of the Great Commission in order to accommodate even the practical things of facility, needs of an expanding church in order to further the mandate of making more disciples among people who are in different locations, different neighborhoods, who are coming together because of a common bond of some type, maybe in some culture. And all this can be done without the common notion of going overseas. I can, I should... Disciple, and this is what we should be thinking. I can and should disciple in my own backyard. As Jesus continues to lay down things, he tells us the accompanying actions that we are to continue to uphold in his church until he returns, and therefore we have number six. Discipleship leads the church into a biblical philosophy of ministry from 19 to the beginning of verse 20. That Jesus, having given us his command to make disciples, also tells us how to carry it out. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And he used three verbs that describe the process from beginning to end, which are go or going, uh, baptizing and teaching. And all three are needed in this equation of bearing the fruit of the Great Commission. And therefore, the way that disciples are made is go, or having gone, and I've expressed that already. A fundamental start point to enable the church to carry out a biblical philosophy of ministry is with an unbeliever in order to fulfill her mission. 
And so we approach a person who is not saved, we pray for him or her, and we proclaim the gospel, which is teaching. Sometimes we think of the Great Commission as only as discipleship. That aspect of the Great Commission of discipleship is only for believers. But we need to teach the gospel to unbelievers. That's where it begins. And when that person comes to saving faith in Christ through believing the gospel truth, we then have a true disciple. He or she now is a follower, a worshiper of Jesus, and is spiritually empowered by the Spirit of Jesus to observe all that Jesus has commanded. And the teaching also has to be continually taught, present tense, because we live in this body of flesh. Just as this morning, we need to be reminded of the Great Commission. And we must systematically proclaim the full counsel of God's word, which is to be applied in the local church. Every new believer is then to be baptized in the name, the complete nature, the character, and the person represented in our triune God of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit by making that public profession. That declaration of one's gift of salvation being identified with Christ alone as an outward sign of inward grace. Now, before we move on, it's an interesting thing to note that the word name in Greek is singular, referring to the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that's, of course, a totally whole new sermon on its own, but something to think about especially in light of some of the theological debates about the Trinity today. And so the local church is charged to continually practice these aspects of the Great Commission. The church is to be characterized by this ongoing and repeated pattern commanded by Jesus himself so that the church may function properly, having been given this biblical philosophy of ministry. Within these verses is another aspect of Jesus' command for every believer that I want to highlight, which is number seven. Discipleship leads to a demanding gospel message. Discipleship leads to a demanding gospel message. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Instead of an invitation to you know, receive Jesus into your heart, uh, a wishy-washy, sentimental, Jesus loves you. Won't you try him today? Sign this card. You know, put up your hand. Come to the front. Pray for this prayer. I'm not saying those things are bad because, well, some of the things are bad that I mentioned at the beginning. But some of those methodologies is okay if it's done in the right way. But many times it's not, and that's the context I'm talking about. And when they've done that, the person declares, now you're a Christian. You're a Christian, and you've received the gospel message. But instead, if we understood, and as, as Tim elaborated quite well last night, is that it has to be a call to repentance and a wholesale obedience to Jesus as Lord. And it goes back to a person having to count the cost. It will be to to present to and to call unbelievers to submit to the lordship of Christ in all. 
That is to labor and to strive to everything commanded by Jesus and his treasured word, one precept upon another as one spiritually matures. And therefore, it will be a caring yet demanding gospel message that must be presented, which stems out of Jesus' loving command for people that believe from all nations, a total commitment demonstrated daily, and not just to a, a, a set of static facts, and not to a point of time in the past where a decision was made for Jesus. And so to expand upon the text of what Jesus stated is this, continue teaching them to continually observe all that I have commanded you. And that leads us to our final point in the importance of discipleship in the church. And that is discipleship leads to exuberant joy. Discipleship leads to exuberant joy. The Great Commission leads to this exuberant joy and hope because Jesus concluded with something important to serving our special attention. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so to cement a statement made at the beginning that the Great Commission is given to a group, not just to one person here or there, and it is for another group, so one group to another group, we take note that the pronoun you is plural. It is in the plural. And so for us Canadians, by the way, one of my daughters is American, so I can say this. If you know the American lingo, it's for y'all. And therefore, no matter what life brings day after day, laughter or tears, ups or downs, we know that we always have glorious hope, a solid sense of security, an undeterred guidance, eternal agape, faithful fellowship due to the ever-presence of Jesus to the end of the age. Imagine that. And what we know as human history is consummated by the return of Christ where he will remove us, the church, from this world and rules over his earthly millennial kingdom. As much as we have the daily call of discipleship, deny yourself, take up the cross daily, we are reminded that you also have the daily presence of the great promise that Matthew wrote at the beginning of this gospel. He said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Right? Emmanuel, and he defines what that means, which means God with us. And so amazing. He begins with that, and he ends with that. That Jesus, God the Son, is with you always. It is Jesus Emmanuel who empowers you for your God-glorifying mission, which is to disciple. And to be his disciple living life by Christ's power, not by our own power. We're not doing this by ourselves. Christ is, is working through us, and we need to depend on his spirit to carry out the Great Commission. Otherwise, it's going to be just a big failure. We made people more moral, and you know where they're going to go. Because morality does not save but it is by the power of Christ that saves, and it is by the power of Christ's commission to us to carry that out through him alone. And that brings 
exuberant joy. He uses you and I as tools to disciple. And so we close with this question, which is the, the topic of this session. How important is discipleship in the church? And the answer is laid out in the commission Jesus gave to his church. It is critically important, critically important. If there's anything that we might do for the rest of our life is this, because it is commanded. If there is any biblical philosophy of ministry that maybe some of your leadership is kind of wrestling through, well, maybe we should you know, revamp our music or maybe we should revamp this or that. No, this is the biblical philosophy of ministry that we need to be focused on, especially because we live in the end days. And there is gonna be, and some of you have maybe even taste a bit of it now, that there's going to be rising persecution in North America. We can feel that. Last week, a friend of mine, uh, LBGTQ uh, group, was standing outside his church protesting because they are going against a bill in Canada, BC 16, which basically states if you talk against them, it could be considered as a hate crime. And so it is critically important because discipleship leads the people of Christ to come together. Discipleship leads to worship. Discipleship leads believers to recognize the supremacy of Christ in everything. And discipleship is commanded of God's people. And discipleship leads to church planting. And discipleship leads the church into biblical philosophy of ministry. Discipleship leads to a demanding gospel message, a faithful gospel message. And discipleship leads to exuberant joy. It's not easy. But Jesus didn't say it was going to be easy. But he's going to give you joy as we carry that out in, in our lives in the church. And as the church, we, by the indwelling Holy Spirit, have received the power to carry out discipleship. And some people include Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as part of the Great Commission, as we are his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And this is why we have been and will be blessed by the greatness of Christ's mission for his church. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for just reviving our thinking about the Great Commission where it needed, encouraging us again to really put the full force in these last days in the, into what you have commanded all of your disciples to do. Lord, you are so precious to us. and We love your word. We give you thanks in Jesus' name, amen.